Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line without a studio audience applauding madly for us is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we're off the high of GP Vegas. Are you going to be able to handle recording with just little old me? No, this is so depressing. I really do think I might cut in the live applause into every episode now after you introduce me. It feels so good. I'm going to make it my alarm clock for real. I'm going to just <laughs> cut that MP3 out and I just want to wake up to that every day. Everybody that was in that live studio audience, you all were amazing. That was so, so, so much fun. Yeah, that completely exceeded my expectations for that. And I think I would hope to make that a yearly tradition for us. Oh, yeah. I am already booking my flight to GP Vegas next year. It was a blast meeting everyone, drafting a ton, hanging out with everybody from the Lords of Limited House, exceeded my expectations over and over and over again. Yeah, it was a great weekend. And if you folks were not at GP Vegas, I would highly recommend attending. I mean, I know everyone talks about it being like the best magic tournament out there. And they're right. I mean, it's just super, super fun. There's a ton of people and uh, a ton of things to do. So would would recommend to all of you out there. I did not miss not playing in the main event at all either. Playing side events and having the freedom and not getting the limited fanatic package. Just like having the freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted was A+. plus. Yeah, 100% agree. We'll run it back just that way next year again. So this is the first time I've gotten a chance to play a lot of Magic. Played a ton of Magic at GP Vegas and have done some drafts last night. So we take a look at the trophy leaderboard. I'm now 18 drafts deep on MTGO, 39 and 13 overall record, eight trophies and down to a 75% win rate have done some losing in my last few drafts. Uh-oh, I was going to say, I was like, eight trophies, is that more than previously? But I don't think so, right? You were up, you were at eight trophies pretty quickly. Yep. And then if we move over to best of one arena, I'm now up at 14 drafts, have a 54 and 34 overall record, four trophies and have dipped down to a 61% win rate. Drafts have been tough on the digital magics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That that variance, bro. Uh, I have not been playing any M20 since our paper drafts last weekend in Vegas. I have been doing a lot of Grixis Cube, which is the flavor of the week this week on Magic Online. And I was top of the trophy leaderboard for almost the entirety of it up until now. Uh, but I've been past them at second place. But my first six drafts, Ben, my first six were trophies. That is insane. Yeah, so I have 16 drafts, 38 and 10, 8 trophies, 79% win rate. Crushing it. Yeah. Is the Grixis cube awesome? So I don't think it's awesome. The drafting is fairly repetitive, as you might guess. Like, the, you know, the archetypes are clearly defined and strong. I feel like aggro really crushes, like red aggro, black aggro, or red black sacrifice crushes blue decks most of the time, unless the blue decks are doing like broken vintage cube artifact mana stuff. Um, so that sort of feels like the dynamic of the decks, but the gameplay is really deep. It's really like, I have a headache at the end of each of my streams because I'm just like concentrating so hard because there's so many convoluted lines to think of. So I feel like it's really great for gameplay drafting, maybe not so much. So Ryan Sachs loves this cube is what you're telling me. I would imagine so. Yeah, but he's trying to do all this like dirtily storm stuff. And I'm like, I have not every time I've faced a storm player, I have one. So I don't think Storm is great in this cube. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So diving into today's episode, we are doing our 50 takes in 50 minutes. What started as a meme for our 50th episode has now become a staple of the Lords of Limited canon. And we're doing that for M20, sort of our send off episode for the set as something that folks can come back to listen to. But before we get into any of that... Got to talk about that Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show if you so choose. I got to say, Ben, I'm just in love with our patrons. Getting to meet so many of them last week at GP Vegas, getting that support from everybody for the live show was really incredible. Uh, I know you feel the same way. And uh, we like to make sure that we can interact with each and every one of you folks in our Discord. So if you give any money towards the Patreon, you get access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which is not only a great place to talk strategy for you know M20 on both MTGO and Arena, to talk about these Flavor of the Week sets on uh, Magic Online, to also talk about omniscience drafts that are upon us on Arena this weekend. Uh, but 
to get to like hang out and make sure we can meet up at tournaments. So uh, the Discord is really just a fantastic community. As it grows, it's like at, like sharpening steel or whatever that phrase is. But like I feel like it gets better and better. It gets more and more refined. We're getting really good suggestions in our channel suggestions section of the Discord. So thank you to everybody who participates there. I know you don't always see those changes right away, but we do discuss them. We are thinking about them. So I really appreciate all those suggestions. Keep them coming. And we want to make sure that we shout out each and every new member of our Discord the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming to the fold, Tob the Tobes, Caleb, Alexis, Kevin, Joey, Thor, White Bronco, Will, Dennis, Matt, and Kenneth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And I just want to quickly echo what Ethan said. It was a blast meeting so many people from the Discord at GP Vegas. And everybody that just came up, whether you were a patron or not, just came up and said, you know, the podcast makes my commute way better. Like You make my life better. That was really powerful and really awesome to hear. So if you think that any content creators, not just us, whatever podcasts you listen to, if you have a chance to see those people and just say, hey, what you do improves my life, like that meant a million dollars to me at GP Vegas and was just really cool to get to talk to people and interact with them. Every time it happens, it's thrilling. It's delightful. It really means so much that folks want to come up and talk to us and say that they like our show and that they're like excited about what we put out each and every week. And it just like it blows my mind still. I I don't think I'll, I'll ever get over it. Yep. GP Vegas was great. One more piece of business to attend to before we get into those 50 hot takes. We are partnering with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. And as part of this, we have a gift code for you to get 10% off of your order there, which pertains to any apparel on their website, coalesceapparel.shop, not just Lords of Limited Merchandise. And that code is LOL to get your 10% off. We had a lot of Lords of Limited shirts sported at GP Vegas. So make sure you go there, pick up yours, choose hashtag I'm with Ben or hashtag I'm with Ethan. They got a lot of other sweet Magic the Gathering swag as well. So head on over there and give it a look. All right, here we go, Ben. You know, I don't always do this, but I feel like we're going to nail it this time. So I am going to start a timer. We're going to go for 50 minutes here. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Three, two, one, kick us off. M20 should not be in the conversation for top draft formats of all time. So Ben S has been putting this out there on Twitter and it's gaining some traction. Honestly, I just don't see it. I think M20 is the best core set of all time, but I think that leaves it a far cry away from any of the top draft formats of all time. And I just want to throw out there that I did not put this point on our list. This is all Ben's doing. So the M20 hate here is coming from Mr. Ben Warney, not me. So you can direct all of your comments and letters and concerns to him. It's not M20 hate. I like M20. I wanted to draft M20 all weekend at GP Vegas and I continually got naysay. (laughs) I enjoy M20 as a draft format. I just don't think it's anywhere near top five, top 10, top 15 all time. It's a good core set draft format. And I think that's where it's going to remain. Yeah, I was shocked. So around this conversation of M20 being a great format came a lot of hate for War of the Spark, which made me feel bad for our baby. I think you and I both really liked War of the Spark Limited. More of the sparks in my top five all time. Oh, wow. Okay. There it is. That's the hottest take of all. All right. Number two, white is the worst color in M20. Not such a hot take, right? This is a pretty, pretty lukewarm take. I think everybody's on the same page here. And they got there pretty quickly. I think the thing that people didn't get to fairly quickly was that it's still totally playable and serviceable and you can win with it. Yeah, I think totally draftable. I drafted a blue white skies raise the alarm inspired charge deck at gp vegas and split in the finals of one of our m20 drafts and you were passing to me i think and i was mm-hmm. like okay ethan's passing to me i'm gonna be white and <laughs> just <laughs> leaned in from the get-go it's a pretty good plan so i think the thing to be aware of and as we'll talk about it later on in the episode is that you know white is definitely sort of a, a greater than the sum of its parts color and a lot of what it does and we'll get to this also later is sort of redundant in its color itself, right? Like the things that white wants to do, a lot of the cards in white work towards that. And then you have to sort of figure out how each of the other four colors mix in with that rather than vice versa, like having white sort of fit into what black's game plan is. I think it's sort of the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Number three, Cloud Seer is an incredibly pushed magic card and is the best common overall in the set. So this is coming, the two the two commons that stand out the most are Cloud Seer and Murder. And I think initially people thought Murder was the best common. And I do think it's definitely Cloud Kinseer. Um, Just as far as power level, it's a creature. It affects the board. You curve into it. It gives you card advantage, helps you hit land drops. It just does so, so, so much. It's an elemental, as if that weren't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two cards are coming out as part of Wizard's Fire philosophy, where they're trying to 
push the power level of commons, and I hope that continues. It is very fun to draft with commons this power level and play with commons this power level, and it gives you a chance to compete against people that have opened good rares when you have not gotten a chance to do so. Yeah, and I think it's important to touch on here because I, I think there are still maybe folks out there who don't quite understand why Cloud Seer is better than Murder. Do you feel like you can touch on that real briefly? Yeah, I think everything I just mentioned. So Murder's a reactionary card. It's not going to have an impact on the game until, you know, probably turn six, seven, eight when your opponent plays their bomb. Cloud Seer comes out on curve. It's easier to cast than Murder. It's an evasive threat. It replaces itself. So it's built in. It's a built in two for one. A two one flyer is a very good body. And then you draw the extra card as well. It has synergy in the format as far as elementals. And that's probably the best deck in the format or one of the best decks in the format is any of the team or color pair elementals decks. All of that rolled into one card at three mana is so strong. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard when it comes down on turn three to feel like you can effectively one for one with it because it's already replaced itself and it presents a threat. Like if you don't have spiders or flyers to trade with it, you're going to be in trouble unless you have our next card here. Point number four, Heart Piercer Bow is good in the format, but it is much more difficult to get three or more copies in paper or MTGO than it is on Arena. I think this is one of the biggest differences. And maybe up until like the most recent update on Arena, uh, this was it was a heart piercer bow world and we were just living in it. Like I felt like I was seeing a lot of them on the other side of the battlefield. I was aggressively trying to get them like I, renowned weaponsmith was something I would just like abandon ship for because I knew I could get multiple copies of heart piercer bow. And that package is potent and multiple heartpiercer bows is great and a single one can help pick off that cloud here. right i was sort of high on heartpiercer bow you know a couple weeks into the format and then death sea on arena started you know drafting millions of bows and posting about it on twitter and then i knew heartpiercer bow was a thing i went into ben s's stream and was just hanging out and he was like so mr metronome are you on hashtag team bow and i was like oh okay ben s is doing this too mm-hmm. all right i guess guess heartpiercer bow is a thing in the format now um so yeah i do think though I train wrecked myself a little bit, not train wrecked myself, but I assumed it would be easier to get weaponsmiths and heart piercer bows in paper this weekend when we were at GP Vegas than it actually was. So I would get the weaponsmiths. There were multiple times I ended up with two weaponsmiths in our drafts, but I couldn't pick up heart piercer bows. And I think partially just because of all the hype on arena and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you have to spend high picks on them now, I think. At least in paper, it felt like at GP Vegas because everybody was taking flyers on them because everybody knows how powerful they are when they come together in multiples, which just makes it almost impossible for you to get multiples. I think that Heartpiercer Bow Weaponsmith is going to be like the spider spawning of this format whenever it comes back. Like if it comes back on Arena or if it comes back to MTGO or something, or if you're going to do like a draft of it at a GP when it's not the current set, I think that's when people are just going to be like, I remember this is the powerful thing to do, so I'm going to try and do that. Number five, Heartpiercer Bow is an Arena warping card. This completely changed the metagame of Arena versus Paper, and I think it's due to this single card and Weaponsmith package. There's there's other things going on there too, like Fairy Miscreant Package. There's just cards that warp the Arena metagame compared to the Paper MTGO metagame. But regardless, Heartpiercer Bow on Arena existing and the ease of getting multiple copies makes Murder better than Cloudkinseer. So I think Murder is the best common on Arena, more so than Cloudkinseer, because there's too many bows floating around to just pick off your Cloudkinseer and then it's no longer a two-for-one. It makes Renowned Weaponsmith a much better pick and drafting around bows and Weaponsmith very powerful because you can reliably get the bows multiples. And it makes every X1 on Arena so much worse than they are on MTGO. Like, I just don't think you can cast Sedge Scorpion on Arena and expect it to be worth a card. I 100% agree. And, and I think Sedge Scorpion is one of like a card that I really like. I think it combos well with, you know, Mask of Immolation. I think it's like really good in the green black loop decks, but it feels like a huge liability when you know that the metagame is so warped around Heartpiercer Bow. Number six, Raise the Alarm and Inspired Charge are the keys to making the white decks work. So I was talking about this, about how like there's this sort of redundancy in white about all the cards working together and Raise the Alarm really being chief among them. And it's why we believe that Raise the Alarm is the best white common in the format, um, because all of what white's trying to do is like go wide, play these like sort of little one one bodies that don't really matter on their own, but adding up together, make Inspired Charge better, make Inspiring Captain better, Ancestral Blade, Marauder's Axe. These are also doing work in white decks, but it's all working towards this common goal of going wide with creatures that your opponent doesn't want to use removal on and then being able to swing for large chunks of damage. 
I think also just augmenting those creatures. So I think Ancestral Blade and Marauder's Axe, the equipment, also do serious work in the white decks. If you can turn those Raise the Alarm tokens into creatures that have three or four power as attackers and turn them into real cards, that's another way to turn white into a good deck. So I had Marauder's Axe in one of my blue-white decks at GP Vegas, and somebody had come up to me and asked me and said, oh, do you really like Marauder's Axe? And I was like, well, no, but I do like it in white decks specifically because the white cards are so bad that having a card like Marauder's Axe allows your white cards to become more effective magic cards at trading or pressuring your opponent or whatever. So I do think the equipment's also a big key to making white work. Number seven, Mono Red is a real deck and probably the best deck in the format when it comes together with all the elemental synergy plus Goblin Smuggler making your Lavakin Brawler unblockable stuff. So this deck also sometimes has a light splash. So sometimes you just get there with Mono Red, but I think even more frequently than actual mono red is like mono red splashing two rabid bites or mono red splashing two cloudkin seers or whatever there's a lot of powerful single colored cards that are either removal spells or very powerful cards that are worth splashing and then you're also incentivized by red cards to draft mono red like there's what's chandra's regulator Mm -hmm. there's chandra's regulator at rare that can do serious work in mono red And all of the red commons work together towards the same goal. You know, you have the smuggler that makes the Lavakin Brawler unblockable. You have the Ember Cat that can ramp you into the Lavakin Brawler. And then you curve into the smuggler, making it unblockable. You can just push so much damage. And every red card, you know, has that elemental synergy or, you know, the Goblin Smuggler works so well in tandem with Lavakin Brawler to make it so hard for your opponent to stabilize. And then heaven forbid you get Mask of Immolation. Once that comes down, even more elemental synergy. And then you can get the Mask in tandem with Chandra's Spitfire to pump that flyer, the 1-3 flyer that gets plus 3 plus 0 when you deal a damage to an opponent that's non-combat damage. There's so many things going on just self-contained within red at the common and uncommon level that when mono red comes together, and I think you're incentivized to try to draft mono red when you're drafting red, it's one of the best decks in the format. Yeah, if you had told me that Scorch Spitter was going to be a real card in the format when we were looking at the spoilers, I would have called you crazy, but that card is real as a one drop in these aggro red decks. Can confirm. I drafted a pack one pick one Golos at GP Vegas and drafted this sweet Golos deck and Kaz from Discord just absolutely smashed me with mono red and just absolutely savaged me with a main deck tectonic rift blowing up my five different colors of mana so I couldn't activate my Golos oh, and pushing God. like 14 damage. I was so tilted. Jesus. <laughs> that moves us to number eight, which is Goblin Smuggler is one of the most oppressive commons in the set. And it's because like it is, and it's because it presents a card that you have to deal with, but that's then like a speed bump because you also want to deal with the Lavakin Brawler. So it's like, it's almost like a flag bearer in that sense. Yeah, like, that definitely the, the is problem, how it feels. The problem is the Lavakin Brawler, but you have to kill the Goblin Smuggler before you can deal with the Lavakin Brawler. Because if you don't kill the Goblin Smuggler, like if you kill the Brawler, they're just going to have something else that the Smuggler is going to work well with. Like pushing Lavakin Brawler through for huge amounts of damage is big. But if you're like pairing it with Black, especially, I think it makes racing really hard with a Blood Burglar. You can get Audacious Thief past blockers and drawing cards. Like there's just so many things that Smuggler works well with that it just feels really oppressive to me. I agree. And I would not have come to this conclusion without the Lords of Limited Discord. I think Court of Calls in our Discord was one of the first people that was on Goblin Smuggler and was talking up Mono Red. And I think he absolutely nailed it. And I do think Goblin Smuggler is great. And there was a point in time on Arena where the bots just had no idea that Goblin Smuggler was a good card. Yeah. You could get five, six, seven copies if you wanted them. Number nine, almost every black deck wants a copy of Sanitarium Skeleton and some decks want up to three or four copies. This is the best sanitarium skeleton has ever been. Can you talk about that at all, Ethan? Yeah, well, I think it really, you know, if we're talking about white being like, you know, all the cards in white working towards this sort of similar goal, I think all the cards in black are working towards a similar goal. Like there are some times where you'll have like a red, black assertive deck. Maybe your black, white deck is more assertive because that's sort of what white is trying to do. But more often than not, like blue, black is very grindy and all about like scholar of the ages loops or drawing a bunch of cards with winged words or getting back multiple creatures with soul salvage. Black green, we talked about for a long time on the show about like being this like loop to loop grindy deck. Like black is really trying to get into the late game and just eke out a lot of value. And sanitarium skeleton fits in really well there. You know, you can sacrifice it to blood for bones to get back two creatures and then you get back skeleton. You can mill it into your graveyard with gorging vulture and then that's sort of like a free card. You can sacrifice it to bone splinters and that doesn't feel bad. Like it works well with so many things in black. And then there's other things outside of that, you know, like, you know, you're happy to smack some equipment onto it to make it bigger you're happy to uh 
sacrifice it to massive immolation over and over again. There's just a lot of stuff that it works well with, and it doesn't feel embarrassing to play multiples of them. Blood-soaked altar is a big one, too. Once you get Sanitarium Skeleton going off with that, you're doing it. For sure. Number 10, Chandra's Outrage is a better pack one, pick one than Shock. Now, you want one of each before you want two of one, right? So, like, you definitely want to make sure that you're diversifying there. And I initially wrote in our show notes here that I didn't agree with it, but I was thinking about this in terms of black, like murder versus disfigure. And I think murder is a better pack one, pick one than disfigure. And Chandra's outrage is much closer to murder. And while I think disfigure is better than shock, uh, I don't think it's by that much. And so I think when I thought about it in those terms, it made it clear to me why I do agree that Chandra's outrage is better than shock. Oh, so you were initially on team shock. I was on team shock as, as you can see in the show notes, just a day ago, I was on team shock. That's not, I, th- I thought you meant you wanted multiple Chandra's Outrage before you wanted a single shock. No, 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 I- I'm no. Much, I'm much closer to that than the other way around. Aha, uh-huh. gotcha. Because I think you're taking two murders before you take a disfigure, right? Yes, yeah, I am. And if Chandra's Outrage is closer to murder, I think you're much more likely to want two Chandra's Outrages before you want your first shock. The, the problem is, I think, is Lavakin Brawler. Like, how many four drops can you play? Right, I agree. And black doesn't have that problem. I mean, like, you don't really care that much about having a ton of three drops. Like, you're happy to have Audacious Thieves and Gorging Vultures and Murders in your deck. Whereas the four drops not getting filled with, like, Outrages and Kelden Raiders and Lavakin Brawlers and Scampering Scorchers. Like, it just gets filled up pretty quickly. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you're 100% right. Number 11, card advantage and ways to mitigate flood are very important in M20. This was one of my first realizations about the format you know i played my first couple matches didn't trophy and then i was thinking about why i didn't trophy and it was literally just that my opponent had more resources than me at the end of the game and so i started prioritizing card advantage and my win rate shot up so games of m20 go long and i think if one person ends up with way more resources than the other they can usually figure out a way to win even if maybe their card quality is slightly worse or whatever just literal card advantage because the games go so long so prioritizing cards like winged words kelden raider Destructive Digger, Silverback Shaman. There's a lot of ways to two for one in this format. Soul Salvage. So I think just looking out for that stuff and prioritizing it, that was a recipe for early success in the format. And I think as the formats matured and people have, you know, figured out a lot more about what the two color archetypes actually the the ideal decks look like, maybe raw card advantage isn't going to quite do it for you, but still making sure your decks that want to grind have ways to two for one is very important. All of those effects snowball like they stack onto each other and if your opponent is doing more two for one than you are like the first one sure they play a cloud concealer you're like ah that's kind of a bummer but that'll be fine but if then you know that dies and they soul salvage it back and something else that feels like a beating if you're not also doing that you are going to fall behind on resources very quickly I think the other thing I didn't mention here is when you're two for one and you're hitting your land drops more reliably and there's a lot of really good seven drops. So two for oneing, you know, or, and or making sure you're drawing cards, hitting your land drops lets you cast those seven drops on time. And those are game swinging cards as well. Number 12, Cryptic Caves is a card you should only include if your mana base can support it. Right. We talked about this, I think, in our crash course, because I think you and I disagreed on it a little bit. Uh, a colorless land is a very real cost to pay for the power level of a land that can turn into a card in the late game. So I think oftentimes I might think about this as an 18th land, like a sort of a flex slot of like, well, it's fine because it's sort of, if I am flooding out and I draw it, I can crack it later. Um, But I would really think about it long and hard before including it in a deck because already limited mana bases are a little sketchy, like 10, 7, 9, 8. Like that's not great. But that's sort of which is what we're accustomed to. And throwing a colorless land into the mix, I think people are way more inclined to do that at times when they shouldn't. So I would really think about having consistent mana being more important than the possible value of this card. Right. I put this on on this list because I think Ben S is pretty high on Cryptic Caves. And mm-hmm. that, that surprised me. I mean, it is a powerful card, right? It can be a game swinging card if you get to the late game and you're able to sacrifice it. And it hasn't punished your mana along the way. But it can also be the flip side of that argument is it can be a game losing card as well, right? Yes. Like if you get your opening seven and you have mountain cryptic caves and a bunch of green cards in your red green deck and you have to mulligan, that could be a game losing card to have included in your deck as well. So you got to make sure you understand the inverse side of that equation as well. Right. Well, when someone like Ben S is a fan of this card, it's because, you know, he's never including it when he shouldn't be he's going to be building responsible mana bases with his decks. And so I feel like that's why he's so high on this card is because he's going to know when to put it in his deck and when not. 
Number 13, Loaming Shaman is an archetype defining card. Man, fate is rough. This should have been your point. <laughs> should have, we should have switched that to an even one. So you were the one that discovered this card. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So like, you know, I was a big fan of the Dovin's Acuity, Clear the Mind, Infinite Loop deck, and Loaming Shaman lets you do that. And so Loaming Shaman plus any of the recursive pieces that exist in black or Pulse of Marasa in green allows you to sort of like infinitely loop your graveyard into your library or a selection of your graveyard into your library so that you never deck. And so we talked about this if you want to go so we talked about this deck in particular a few episodes back. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I would recommend checking that out. Um, but this card just like really does something that nothing else in the format does. It allows you to build a deck that doesn't need to win. It just needs to not lose. And it's a really powerful effect. I think especially in tandem with Moldervine Reclamation as the card that gives your deck velocity, same way that Dovin's Acuity gave your blue-white decks velocity. So it, like Moldervine Reclamation plus Loaming Shaman is Dovin's Acuity plus Clear the Mind. Yeah, for sure. I hadn't really thought about that, but they're both enchantments that gain you life and draw you cards, which is important for that style of deck. Right. Number 14, Chandra, Awakened Inferno, and Gargos, Vicious Watcher are the best rares to open. So I think Chandra, Awakened Inferno, as a surprise to no one, is just a really tough card to deal with. It like has such a high loyalty when it comes down. If it's starting to make emblems, it's just pretty bonkers it's really hard to deal with that and it can also like just come down in wrath or deal with a threat on your opponent's side and still stick around gargos fishes watcher like i think this card even on face value you read it and you go okay this is like tough to deal with when it comes into play it is a huge beating yeah absolutely number 15 the lele item anticipation is more playable than you think and the rest can be left for constructed so ley line of anticipation is the blue ley line and it lets you cast all spells as though they had flash and initially it looks like eh, that effect's not worth a card but blue has enough ways to recoup card advantage that i think you can afford to spend a card on that effect and once you do it makes your opponent's life a nightmare as far as gameplay decisions are concerned you know it's sort of like having to ferry out in cube like they never know whether it's safe to attack etc etc so i think ley line of anticipation is probably worth a slot in some styles of blue decks yeah, it's just really hard to face it down profitably. Like, do you just never attack? Probably not. And so then you're probably going to have to make some attacks into some bigger creatures that they can flash in. And that's what makes Leyline of Anticipation good, in my opinion, is that it's pretty easy to just like ambush a creature. And then you're, you've made up for that card disadvantage of playing this card. And then the rest is gravy. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Number 16, Unchained Berserker is really the only color hoser creature of the bunch worth main decking. And I think that's partially because of synergy with Goblin Smuggler, the fact that you can activate Smuggler when it's a 1-1 and then attack in as a 3-1. Um, I don't think the pro-white part of things really makes it uh, effective main deck material, um, but I do think that that synergy makes it worth a slot. I've also main decked Cerulean Drake more often than I would care to admit, but largely in blue-white flyers decks when I have an Empyrean Eagle or something like that, I'm just caring about getting a critical mass of flyers, and I think, you know, I free roll the protection spell, protection from red part of it, and then if that's not good, I'll side it out aggressively. That's fair. I agree with that. Number 17, Blood-Soaked Altar looks like it requires too much setup, but is a very good top-end engine in the format. And in tandem with Sanitarium Skeleton, we've already talked about that. There's tons of ways to mitigate the cost you have to pay, right? You have to discard a card, sacrifice a creature, and lose two life. I think actually the losing two life is the most difficult part of the card to pay for, which would not have been obvious to me when I was evaluating it initially, but after playing with it, that's definitely what my, my experience has been. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes you just fall too far behind and then you can't afford to pay the two life. But with cards like Sanitarium Skeleton, other ways to recoup, you know, creatures in black, soul salvage, things like that, the the sacrificing a creature and there's lots of tokens lying around in the format, you know, in black, white or black, green, whatever, you've got a ferocious pup. And five, five flyers, once they start to hit the battlefield, are a gigantic problem. So if you're going off with this and you stabilize your life total, I think you're probably going to find a way to win the game. Yeah. Number 18, Mask of Immolation has more synergy than you think. You know, it, it hurt my heart a little bit to hear Ben S not be a fan of this card last week or two weeks ago. I agree. I think he's missing out a little bit. So there's just a lot that this card does. So first of all, it creates an elemental and teamer elementals is one of the best synergy decks in the format. So I think it fits in well there. As we talked about before, it pairs nicely with sanitarium skeleton. Maybe you don't know this, but there's a couple of death touch creatures in the format, Sedge scorpion and vampire, the dire moon. And unlike heart piercer bow, where when you attack with the thing bow deals the damage, so it doesn't work in tandem with death touch mask of immolation, the creature deals the damage. So it just turns your death touch creatures into murders and it also works nicely with Bladebrand and Fathomfleet Cutthroat, right? You can use Bladebrand to turn the elemental token into a creature with death touch and then 
shoot it somewhere or ping something, play your Fathom Fleet Cutthroat and finish the creature off. Yeah, I didn't really realize how much Mask of Immolation Synergy had with Black until I saw the Sanitarium Skeleton thing happen the first time. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm just going to get machine gunned down the rest of the game. And I think also just self-contained synergy within red, right? It works with Chandra Spitfire. Mm-hmm. It's, we've already said it's an elemental, but just like the the red decks want to be so aggressive and like the killing your opponent synergy is super real also. Like once Mask of Immolation comes down, your opponent's life total is essentially like four or five points less. Right. Like there are games where the red deck just can't close out where you're like, ah, I got them down to four or five. Well, Mask of Immolation is going to finish them off pretty nicely. Not to mention it's just a good card that trades for cards in the format. You know, mm-hmm. your opponent plays a Sedge Scorpion or a Vampire of the Dire Moon. You shoot it down with your Mask of Immolation token, and then you've got this equipment laying around that's still going to do stuff the rest of the game. It's so much of the time, even without synergy, it's worth like one and a half cards worth of value. Moving on to our next point. Number 19, Blade Brand and Fathom Fleet Cutthroat make combat very difficult. First of all, they increase the power of Audacious Thief, similar to what Mask of Immolation does. You know, just make it difficult to block, and they're doing slightly different things. So there are scenarios where it's better, you know, for you to play around Blade Brand or it's better for you to play around Fathom Fleet Cutthroat, but it's difficult to play around both of them at the same time optimally. And it increases the opportunities for your opponents to bluff attack in black. You know, that's not something we really advocate for, but, you know, it's easier in black to plant the idea in your opponent's mind that you might have one of these two cards, even if you don't. I'm much more inclined to believe my opponent when they make fishy attacks and they have swamps on their side of the battlefield. Number 20, Fairy Miscreant is the best catch them all in the format. So there's this cycle of sort of like if you have multiples of these creatures, they get better, blah, blah, blah. Fairy Miscreant is really the only one I think you want to be going for. It's not even really a contest, right? Undead Servant is pretty clunky as a four drop because there's so many other good fours in black. Growth Cycle is fine, right? You're, but like, I feel like I'm just more inclined to play just one of them because it's a trick rather than be like, sweet, I'm really doing it and I have three of them. Foot Soldier, as we found out in our white episode and has been new all along, isn't necessary for white to win. And Pax Mastiff is just much closer to a bear. Like it has some synergy as well with Goblin Smuggler because you can pump it, but you would hope to be having better targets for Smuggler. Multiple Miscreants is the real deal, especially in blue-white skies. Yeah, I cannot tell you the number of times my arena opponents go turn one Fairy Miscreant, turn two Fairy Miscreant, Fairy Miscreant, and I just want to concede on the spot. Feels real bad. Number 21, Pattern Matcher is a good card, full stop. If you have at least two matches to search up, this is a card that you're actively seeking out and wanting to play in your deck because Hill Giant's fine and Hill Giant draw card is very good. And if your you know, matches for your pattern matcher, your cards that you have two or more of cost three or less, and you can curve, you know, like let's say you have Cloudkins here Oof. into pattern matcher, searching up another Cloudkins here, because a lot of times the commons you get multiples of are the cards you're picking highly and that are some of the best cards mm-hmm. in the format. And even then, you know, even if you're searching up whatever, a C plus level common, that's yeah. still a ton of value to get off one card. Pattern matcher is very good, should be a high pick and is a great place to start a draft. Number 22, the uncommon color hosers are high picks in best of three and basically unplayable in best of one. I'd say sort of the exceptions slash the doubling down on how high picks they are really goes to devout decree, which is the white one that, uh, destroys black or red cards and noxious grasp, which is the black one that destroys green or white cards. Um, those are just really efficient, powerful removal spells that you should be taking really highly when you're uh, drafting in a format where you have access to your sideboard. Number 23, this set is full of a lot of powerful rares that look clunky. Don't be afraid to test them out. Lots of them are very good. Shared summons is great if you have two creatures to search up, or even if you only have one bomb rare to search up, you'll have the time to do that most of the time in this format. Chandra's Regulator is an excellent rare in any sort of heavy red deck. If you've got like 12 plus mountains in your mana base, I think Chandra's Regulator is an auto include in your deck. Embodiment of Agonies looks sort of awkward. It's a lot of text in a card and you might think after reading it, this is situational. It's not. Card is very good and is often going to come down, you know, on curve as a 2-2 flying death touch or something like that. You know, turn four, turn five, you're going to be able to play this card. It's going to trade for magic cards. And then sometimes you just get like a three mana 8-8 flying death touch later in the game when you top deck it. Bag of Holding is an artifact that just absolutely wins the game on its own. You know, the two mana to loot is well worth it in this format. The format is fairly slow. It's grindy. You're going to have time to recoup the card advantage. Speaking of rares that look clunky and are clunky, number 24 Wake Root Elemental is closer to Versed Claw than a first pick rare. So you've got 
yeah, it's an elemental, but it's a six mana five, five and a common. You have access to a six mana seven, seven. That's also an elemental. And it's just so rare without a lot of help, like either your mono green or you've got like some gift of paradise or a ton of leaf kin druids. That's the only way you're getting to that five green activation cost that it has to turn your lands into elementals. I'm more interested in talking about Vorst Claw than Wake Root Elemental, honestly. <laughs> at the start at the start of the format, I would have said something like Vorst Claw, more like Worst Claw, am I right? <laughs> and I have lost so many games to Vorst Claw. I think it's just a good card in the format. 7-7 seven, seven is so large. It closes out games for real. All right, Ben. The true question is, which has your heart, Vorst Claw or Colossal Dreadmaw? Oh, Colossal Dreadmall, hands down. Okay, that's, not okay. even a, that's not even a contest. But okay. I do think it fills a similar role to Colossal Dreadmall. And I don't think I thought that about the card prior to losing to it like 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> Number 25, Chandra Novice Pyromancer is the best uncommon in the set. Sorry, Risen Reef. Chandra Novice Pyromancer is such an interesting card coming off the back of War of the Spark because it's just better than all the uncommon planeswalkers in that set. And it's so good. Yeah. An uncommon and uncommon planeswalker that pluses is absurd and should not happen again, I don't think. Yeah, please no. It's so I mean, look, the whole format is pushed. Risen Reef is very powerful. It's definitely like I feel like a close second. But Chandranov's Pyromancer being just good on its own, being a single color, it's so oppressive. If your opponent has any sort of board presence people, as we talked about in War of the Spark, like, how do you beat this card? They're just going to, it comes down, it's going to pick something off. Heaven forbid it comes down and they plus it. And that's the best thing they can do. That probably just means you're dead. The card is really, really strong. Number 26, Gauntlets of Light is more playable than you think. So we talked about this a little bit in our uh, white deck, but this combos well with a bunch of things in white, like Daybreak Chaplain and Griffin Sentinel mostly. Uh, Leafkin Druid, sure, is also in the conversation there most notably because that allows you to curve in like two drop into this Gauntlets of Light. And then you're just attacking with a 5-5 Lifelinker if it's Chaplain, a 5-5 Vigilant Flyer if it's Sentinel. This card really can close out some games. Yep, I agree. It's like one with the win in the sense that, yes, it's an aura, high risk, high reward, but the the risk is worth it when the power level of the aura starts to reach a certain point. And I think Gauntlets of Light hits that mark. Number 27, there is so much recursion in this set. And the redundancy of the amount of recursion that's in the set makes recursion better and not worse because you can start to reliably get all these pieces that recur each other and build these loops that just let you grind your opponent into oblivion. Mm -hmm. So some some Heavy hitters from this category, Pulse of Marasa, Gravedigger, Soul Salvage, Blood for Bones. Be on the lookout for those loop-to-dupes, ladies and gentlemen. Speaking of loop-to-dupes, number 28, Scholar of the Ages can provide infinite recursion. So this was, I think, my biggest miss of the set was I was like, it's cost seven mana. It's only a 3-3. How could this be good? And you were like, no, no, no this card's going to be great. And I had it in like my second sealed event during the arena like preview streamer event. And that's all it took for me to go, oh, this is the real deal. So... Comboing it with the aforementioned recursion spells like Pulse, Soul Salvage, and Blood for Bones allows you to sort of infinitely loop it. So you get to then pick up that when you cast Scholar, you get to pick up that spell plus another spell. And then you have Soul Salvage to make sure that you can get back Scholar once it dies. Also, Scholar combos with Unsummon in the same way because you, you can then use Unsummon to pick up the Scholar from the battlefield. And then when Scholar comes back in, it picks up two spells, one of them being Unsummon. Or if you have Portal of Sanctuary, you can use it. Scholar of the Ages just really does it all in the set. Number 29. This was a contentious one for me when I read it, but I think I agree because I felt the same thing about this card. Number 29, Frost Links is not a top blue common in this set. And I think there's just several things working against this card. So blue is generally as a strategy, not trying to tempo its opponents out. If it's aggressive, it really wants flyers. And then Frost Links is not like some key card that's going to shore up the ground for you. And if blue's defensive, it really doesn't want Frost Links because all you do is slow your opponent down for the turn and the 2-2 body is largely irrelevant if you're getting beaten down by something like a Lavakin Brawler. The only thing that really is going for this card is that it's an elemental. And I do think it's probably at at its best in like a blue-red elementals tempo style deck. I think mm -hmm. that's its main home. But having one home doesn't make you a top blue common i don't think i think i'm i think i'm at number four for this in the blue commons yeah i think it's not in the top three for me either number 30 moat piranhas more like mulligan piranhas this card is terrible and it's really hard for me because i feel like blue wants to be defensive as we're talking about that's one of its strategies but a two mana three three 
only blocks like a few things or is going to block stuff that will largely become irrelevant later on. And the fact that it can't block flyers is, I think, the biggest knock against it. It can't pressure my opponent and it can't block flyers. I don't want it in my deck. We just need to pause here for some quick story time. (laughs) So at GP Vegas, Ethan and I were drafting next to each other. Ethan was passing to me in an M20 draft. And this was the aforementioned draft where I was drafting white. I was drafting white-blue. And white was absurdly open. And with about three cards left in the pack, Ethan had deduced that I was white. And there was a Griffin protector that was about to wheel to me, as well as a Moat Piranhas that Ethan could take for his sideboard. And rather than like a good drafter selecting Moat Piranhas for his sideboard that he later would have wanted in one of his matches, he took the Griffin protector and turned to me and ripped it (laughs) in half. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have anything to say for yourself, sir? Uh, I feel like I should say that I was drafting blue black and the only thing I knew I needed to get going into pack three was two drops. Like I had two blood burglars and a disfigure and that was like all I could do before turn three. And I still think moat piranhas was a terrible choice for my deck until I faced a red green aggro deck. And I was like, where's that uh, moat piranhas I wanted to sideboard in. (laughs) (laughs) Number 31 season of growth is a fantastic card advantage engine. It's just good on its own. I think, you know, if you if you have season of growth and one way to trigger it or something like one rabbit bite happily running it. And it's very good in the green white tokens go wide might of the masses style deck. It's just like a B plus in that deck. It's great with rabid bite. It gets better with tricks like feral invocation blade brand. And it's just good with cards that make multiple bodies, you know, scampering scorcher bone clad necromancer raise the alarm. It pulls its weight and is going to replace the value of a card and more over the course of a game. It has been one of the most consistently underrated cards by the bots on arena in every single update. Like I just feel like I know that it's going to wheel like almost a hundred percent of the time. It's underrated by the human bots too. (laughs) Number 32 gift of paradise, evolving wilds and dual lands give a lot of options for fixing though. And it hurts my heart to say this. You don't generally end up splashing in this format. And along those same lines, number 33, despite the set initially being labeled as having been designed across the three color pair wedges, like from Cons of Tarkir, there's way less overlap among wedges for archetypes than I initially would have expected based on the articles I read. And I rarely played two colors in a splash, much less full three colors. And we had a chance at uh, GP Vegas. I was talking to one of the people that came to our live recording that worked on the set design at WotC. And, you know, I was talking to him and he said, Rather than actually expecting M20 to be three colors, it was more that they wanted cards to overlap in multiple archetypes. So they wanted just so you could have more weaving room in the draft. So rather than actually playing three colors, you know, there'd be red cards that were good in red, blue and red, green, as opposed to having cards that like, you know, we try to peg cold. We try to peg cards as secret gold cards. They wanted those, you know, gold cards to be viable in multiple color pairs. The, the hidden gold cards that is so like a red card to be good in red blue and red green in multiple archetypes as opposed to just one archetype which just makes the draft format deeper and i do think they succeeded in that but the two color pair lanes i think were fairly well defined number 34 renowned weaponsmith can be soul ring in the right deck and this is something that i kept forgetting for a long time um but i've but after playing with the card more and more because of how good the Weaponsmith Harpier package is on Arena in particular, I got more experience with it to be like, oh, I can just play this on turn two and then play a Stone Golem on turn three. And a turn three, four, four is pretty awesome. Or I can power out Meteor Golem on turn five. Like just being able to use this to not only cast artifact spells, but to activate abilities of artifacts makes me want to play Retributive Wand more in my deck. It even maybe makes Colossus Hammer playable, Ben. What do you think about that? I think it does. I was laughing at my opponent's Colossus Hammer on MTGO the other day, and then they cast a Weaponsmith, and then they equipped their Colossus Hammer, and I was like, okay, I get it. Well played. (laughs) Number 35, Destructive Digger lets you sacrifice Retributive Wand for five damage. This is not immediately obvious unless you dive into the set, so make sure you pay attention for small synergies like that. Um, Destructive Digger makes Retributive Wand, I think, a card you actively want in your main deck. Number 36, I would only play Healer of the Glade if I had a Risen Reef in my deck. I don't know. Can you tell that to my opponents, please? Well, every time my opponent goes far as Healer of the Glade, I say to myself, they're either very smart or very stupid. Like, you're either mulliganing right now or you have Risen Reef and I'm terrified. 
This happened to me so much in the start of the format that I was asking in Discord if I was missing something about Healer of the Glade because my opponents kept playing it and like somehow the three life gain kept mattering in the games <laughs> I was playing. Of course it did against you. And I, and I knew it was a bad card, but I was the the frequency that this card gets played is way too much. Number 37, when the black-white uncommon-based life gain deck comes together, it is really strong. It doesn't come together often. I think I've played against it once. I think you've played against it once. I have not had a chance to draft it. But the time I did play against it, I was really, really, really impressed with the synergy among all the cards that care about life gain at uncommon and black-white. Yeah, I'm, as we said when we talked about that deck, when Soulmender is good in your deck, I think you've done it. Number 38, Sage's Road Denizen decks don't come together often enough for it to be a viable strategy. I know you always want to mill your opponents out, Ben, but do you agree with this? It's on my bucket list. I still haven't made it happen. I'm going to jam some arena this weekend, I think, and Sage's Road Denizen dot deck is going to be high on my list of things to try to do. Well, I think you can wheel them pretty reliably on Arena. It's just such an easily disruptable strategy. It's so hard. Like, you really want two of them in play, and you have to be stable. Like, a 2-3 blocker on the ground, again, like, it's basically like a three-mana moat piranhas because you're not trying to attack with it, and it doesn't really block a lot of stuff effectively. I just feel like before you mill your opponents, you're probably just going to be dead unless your opponent is also doing something super slow and dirtily. Yeah, makes sense to me. Number 39. Pacifism ended up being just fine at the end of the format. It's not the best white common. I think it's the second best white common. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as far as enchantment based removal goes, sleep paralysis is still pretty bad. I think of anything that I've learned since we've started the podcast, it's just that this enchantment based removal continues to underperform time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just so many more creatures that have relevant abilities when you leave them on the battlefield, etc. Yeah, I think this is probably a takeaway that I'm going to try to apply for future formats. You know, we feel like I try and you know I feel like I want to be able to take stuff from previous sets and apply them when we're looking at the crash course in future sets and it just feels like I've been burned especially by these four mana ones in blue like sleep paralysis capture sphere from guilds of Ravnica was a big miss for me that took me a long time to go yeah this card just doesn't fit in any decks and four mana for this kind of effect is a lot and there's just a lot of bounce or sacrifice stuff, things that when you're leaving the creatures behind, it's not actually removal, right? It's still, it still even leaves an elemental behind to make people's Lavakin brawlers bigger or whatever. Like just this enchantment-based removal doesn't quite get the job done anymore, especially if they're going to start printing murder at common. Preach. Number 40, don't be afraid of seven drops in this format. Dracoseth, Scholar of the Ages and Meteor Golem are great first picks and will make your deck almost always. And they'll make your deck better. They're really powerful and you're probably going to be able to get to seven mana. Number 41, Diamond Knight is too slow and unreliable. I've had a lot of heavy monocolored decks and some actual monocolored decks in this format. And I've tried Diamond Knight out in a couple of them and it's just not a good card, even in a monocolored deck. It takes too long to get going. By the time you play it on curve on turn three, and that's... <coughs> If you have it on curve, heaven forbid you're drawing it later in the game when it's just absolutely horrible. But if you have it on curve, by turn four, it's a 2-2. Two, two. Turn five, it's a 3-3. Three, three. It's just always a turn or two behind the game. You really need to be able to double spell reliably in addition to being heavy one color to even turn it into a reasonable card. Number 42, Scuttlemutt's second ability can be relevant. So there's a lot of protection from X color in the format that Scuttlemutt can interact with. So, you know, if you have a couple Scuttlemutts, you can maybe start to think about main decking some of those color hosers that we talked about, like Noxious Grasp. It also has just like random little synergies. I have a little story time here. I was playing a, a match. I got paired with Quarter Calls on MTGO earlier in the format, and I got to stop an attack because he was trying to do what we were talking about before about Goblin Smuggler making Unchained Berserker unblockable because it's one power and then attack with it as a 3-1. But when he went to activate it, I got to make Goblin Smuggler white with the Scuttlemutt so that he couldn't target Unchained Berserker with it. Tech. Yeah. Number 43, Steel Overseer is a great first pick because it's a flexible colorless card. It's going to increase the value of other artifacts you might not consider playable like Scuttlemutt, Anvil Rot Raptor, Stone Golem. Prismite's still pretty terrible. Sorry, Prismite. <laughs> but I think, you know, even beyond first picks, Steel Overseer is just a very good two drop, right? It's a two drop yes. that's going to scale with the game. So even if you're not first picking it, 
I think it's just a high quality two drop. And the fact that there are other artifacts like a meteor golem or whatever, there's just random artifacts that are going to end up in your deck. So I think Steel Overseer is just a good card in the format. Yeah, I like it. And it gets passed, I think, a lot later than it should because of how it's just like this is a serviceable two drop. You're not going to be mad to top deck it later in the game, probably. And the fact that you can sort of draft around it to increase its power level, all that adds up to a really good card. Number 44, we've been hinting at this a little bit throughout the episode. M20 very subtly incentivizes your decks to be heavily skewed towards a single color. So self-contained synergies in colors like white and red, like we've talked about before, that really leads you to be like, I'm basically mono white, but or basically mono red, splashing another color. Uh, Second point here, murder being black black requires you to be heavy black for that card to be great. Also think about something like Yarox Fenlurker, like that card is really going to want you to be heavily incentivized towards being black. Uh, blue, green, and green have the easiest color requirements, but Leafkin Druid also really wants you to be heavy green because you're going to want to be able to play that on turn two reliably, and then you're also going to want to be able to use its mana reliably for your creatures. So I think this is not immediately apparent when you look at the set, right? But I do think it's a, a true statement about the set is that I, more than any other set other than Modern Horizons, I think Modern Horizons was the same way. And it's funny that they were both back to back, but other than that, like I cannot tell you the number of times in limited I have had 10, seven mana bases, 11, six mana bases, 12, five mana bases mm-hmm. or been monocolored. And I think that's just the norm in this format because there's so many, like you said, self-contained synergies in a single color. Red cards all work together. And then, you know, you pick up a couple rabbit bites or you pick up a couple cloudkin seers and all of a sudden you've got, you know, a 12, five mana base. And I think that's just the norm because of but it's not obvious when you look at the set right and also stuff like the cavaliers being triple colored and i think even the point about murder being black black you know if you're whatever nine eight and you're heavy green but you want murder in your deck you have to play those eight swamps but really your mana base probably wants to be more if you're heavy green playing a little bit of black probably wants to be more 10 7 but as soon as your mana base is 10 7 and you've only got seven swamps murder's not like a I mean, it's still a great card, but you're not going to be able to reliably cast it anymore. So I think all of that works together to make decks incentivized to be monocolored or not, not monocolored, but heavy base one color. Number 45, flame sweep is not an auto include in every deck. So this is another Ben S point that he's been touting on Twitter. And I do think it's closer to what he's saying than it's closer to being a true sideboard card. And it's a very high pick. It's a very powerful card, but I don't think you main deck it 100% of the time like he's claiming. And maybe he's just trying to be hyperbolic to get people to play it more. But I do think you either need your main deck to line up right where you don't have tons of 2-2s, you know, because there are a lot of good X-2s in red, right? It's Mm -hmm. very possible to end up with a lot of Chandra's Embercats, a lot of Goblin Smugglers. And if you have those cards in multiples, like I think if you've got seven or eight cards that have two toughness, you're going to have to do too much of your own maneuvering around flame sweep to make it a good card. And I think the the argument against that is that it's an instant and you can try to set up blocks or attacks or things where your cards are going to trade up. But even then, you're you're trying to do a lot of finagling. Then flame sweep's turning into a very situational card, right? Mm-hmm. So I think either your main deck needs to line up really well with flame sweep to include it in the main deck, or it's going to be an insanely powerful card out of your sideboard. Number 46, Loxodon Life Chanter and Golos Tireless Pilgrim are bomb rares and get passed way too late in pack one for far too much of this format. I, I don't know if I say Golos is a bomb rare. Like you have to do work for it to be bomb status. Like you have to do work for your mana base to be able to activate it because just a five mana three five that finds a land from your deck isn't a bomb. But boy, howdy, is that something I'm going to be pack one pick one and trying to make work because if I can get it to that point, it is that true bomb status. And locks it on life chander is just busted good. It's really, really strong and really hard to deal with if you don't have just like straight up murder. Yeah, makes sense. Number 47, it is rarely correct to draft white on arena because the gap in power level between white and the next best color is so high. And on arena, draft doesn't self-correct. So if you have the choice between, you know, trying to steer into white green or trying to steer in one of the best archetypes like, you know, blue green, you should just try to steer into blue green on arena. The only times I think you should be drafting white is when rare cards are just pushing you hard in that direction, like a Loxodon Life Chainer or the White Cavalier or whatever. Number 48, the arena bots went through phases with each update of what was undervalued. Feels like right now, blue-black is the case of what's undervalued. So I think we did a pretty good job throughout the course of our M20 life on the show, keeping up to date with what 
was new and different or what was sort of like the exploit to make. I think initially teamer elementals was the thing that you could just always get. I feel like red green elementals was like probably the best deck in the format initially. Then there was an update and it felt like black finally became viable. Like initially murder was really overvalued by the bots. So you just like couldn't get into black. Then I felt like they overcorrected that. And then black and green in particular were open. I mean, there was, that was the time when I was obsessed with the loop de loop deck because one, I thought it was very powerful, but two, I just felt like I could always get the pieces for it because they were so undervalued by the bots. And then third update happened, and that was the Heartpiercer Bow, Weaponsmith Life we were all living. And now it feels like blue-black value grindy is the thing, the talk of the town these days. Yeah, and I think Weaponsmith is still probably a part of those blue-black decks. I think they, if, if Arena Draft is going to stay the same as it is with the bots, they need to start designing sets without these catch-em-all cards or the cards that are like not supposed to be high picks in draft, but get very good when you get lots of them, like the catch em alls or heart piercer bows or effects that compound on each other, because mm-hmm. you can never really program the bots to pick those cards highly because they're not good. But when those things are in the draft format, they're always going to be exploits on the bots. Right. When people can get goblin smugglers in droves, then that just totally warps their decks because they just know, well, I can grab all these two power things or these Lavakin brawlers and I can build my deck around this because I know I'm going to get the smuggler 13th pick. Right. Number 49, best of one drafting in M20 feels really bad because of the cycle of color hoser creatures and color hoser spells. So that's 10 cards that are borderline unplayable at the uncommon slot in best of one. And it takes a significant series of decisions away during the draft. Like there's times, you know, you start out black card, black card, and you could take that black color hoser. What's the name of it? Noxious grasp. And you could take a noxious grasp, but you're doing best of one. So you can't. And then that just makes it more difficult for you to try to stay black. You know, I've run into that so many times on arena where the best card in the pack is one of those sideboard cards for me to take, but I just can't take it. And I just, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And that brings us to our last point, number 50. M20 has had more card evaluation changes from start to finish than a lot of sets, which I think speaks to its depth in draft and deck building. So not only were there sort of new cards, but a lot of reprints that have considerably overperformed from previous iterations. Like Raise the Alarm is not a new card in the Magic canon, but it was really good in this format. And I think the Lords of Limited Discord sort of hit on this early and often about figuring out like, well, this is really what is making the white decks tick, you know, seeing cards like shock and Chandra's outrage, it feels like Chandra's outrage is really strong here more so maybe than it's been in previous core sets. I think you could add bone splinters and sanitarium skeleton to that list renowned weaponsmith plus heart piercers bow and the dragon fire. Yeah, there's just a lot of things that I feel like we even as the format progressed and the metagame rolled out we were like oh this is better than this this is working with this card in tandem blah 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 like it just felt like it was hard to get a read on a lot of these cards and a lot of the cards that we talked about in this episode some of the the clunky looking rares that ended up just being really strong and powerful cards to first pick um this format i think does have a lot of depth it's definitely the best core set i've ever drafted um so we're not trying to like knock it at all from our first point it's got a lot of depth there's a lot to dive into and i think it'll be you know a, a fine set to go back to when it comes back on arena i agree and even cards like goblin smuggler changing over the course of the format like looking at the spoiler that card looked like nothing to me Mm -hmm. i thought that was a d level card that turned out to be one of the key cards that makes the red decks tick so there was a lot of stuff i think to discover about the format and a lot of it was those self-contained small synergies you know pockets of synergy we're going to keep coming back to that because it's such a nice phrase but you know you have you have four or five cards that work together as a package that when you get them becomes really powerful. And the, the ability to have that in your draft deck is so, so, so strong. And I think M20 had a lot of that stuff to discover along the way that wasn't immediately apparent, which was really cool. Boom. We did it. Boom. I think that's a great place to wrap us up. Just want to say a quick shout out again to everybody from GP Vegas. You all were awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming up and saying hello and sharing your stories with us and telling us you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. We're going to get that new reggae version on here at some point, but it's not going to be this week. <laughs> if you want to come check us out on Twitch and Twitter, it sounds like Ben may be making a comeback. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Mr. is spelled out. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. We can check us out on Twitter, too, under those same usernames. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any questions about the show or any feedback, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
<laughs> I love how every time I do something wrong, you just say no. <laughs> like I'm a bad dog or something. I just need a newspaper right on the nose. What should, what should I do? I don't know. But you just like, it just seems always like the, immediately. The, the easiest, just, quickest no. way to do it. It's just, nope. Uh, no, no. <laughs> There's going to be a water bottle in my face or something. Okay. <clears throat> We're in, a, we're in an abusive relationship. 